but would you infuse uh, power and truth and impact through these words into the hearts and minds of every person here, all of whom you love deeply. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Well, summertime is here, or it's almost here. It's close. I know that we have different school districts that are represented, so I know for some school is out, for some it's not out yet. But summertime is here, and if you're excited that summertime is here, would you clap, applaud? You'd say, yeah, you're... No surprise, no surprise, but, 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 if you're less than fully happy that summertime is here, would you clap? And so you got some mixed emotions. That, there's some honest folks here. There are definitely some honest folks here. It's a mixed bag for some folks, but summertime is here. We are now about eight weeks past Easter, and we've spent the entire eight-week run been looking at the book of Acts, and we've been looking at the early church, the first few days in which the church came into existence, and the first few years, actually, in which it came into existence. And I want to recap, to put us all on the same page, recap for about two minutes. We, we've talked about how the very day the church began... God showed up in such a powerful, all-filled, all-filled way that there were 3,000 people that very first day that said to Jesus, would you forgive me and lead me? 3,000 followers of Jesus the first day. And you turn a couple of pages later, and so maybe some weeks have passed, and it says by that time, it says now there were 5,000 men alone that were followers of Jesus. And if the church was like it was like it is now back then. If there were 5,000 men, then there were 10,000 women and a bunch of children as well. So it, it had exploded so many people. We get to Acts chapter 4, and there's this poignant passage that talks about just the, like the character of the church. It says in Acts 4.32, it says, all the believers were united in heart and mind. In other words, they were all on the same page. They felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. There was such selflessness and such compassion and such love that they viewed the things in their possession as things that actually were owned by God. And where the need existed, they would actually sell or give away the things they had to meet the needs of others. There was this deep compassion. There was this deep sense of love for others. And life was about God and others. It wasn't about me. It was about God and others. And as an example to how that looked, down in verse 36... It says, for instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. There's this guy named Joseph, and it says that that the apostles gave him this nickname of Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And in fact, that nickname would so fit this guy that uh, from that time forward, people would know him as Barnabas. The name Joseph is quickly forgotten. And, and um, he would take this field he owned as he saw the needs of others, and he would cash it out, bring the money to the church so needs could be met. And I'm sure that, that in that very first church, I'm sure that there were some families, <clears throat> maybe a handful, maybe several dozen families, that were deeply impacted by Barnabas's act, by this act of generosity and compassion. I'm sure there were families on the spot that they ate when they wouldn't have, or a family that had a tent over their heads when they wouldn't have because of his generosity. I'm sure deep impact upon a few people in that time, but this was not the mark that Barnabas would make upon the church or upon the planet. That's going to come in a few moments. So, so this is the nature of the church, and then I began to talk then about how persecution began the 
religious leaders uh, began to oppose the church. The civil authorities began to oppose the church. And, and the focus of opposition and persecution was, was uh, lasered into this man named Saul, who developed this deep hatred for those that followed Jesus. And last week I began to talk about how he pursued that, about how his, his entire consuming passion was he would find people that just simply believed in Jesus and gave their lives to Jesus, did nothing else uh, wrong other than that in his eyes, and he would have them arrested and tried and executed. And it was Saul's plan to do nothing less than a complete genocide. In other words, every single person on the planet that, that gave their life to Jesus, his plan was to have all of them executed, just wipe them from the face of the earth. And so last Sunday, to kind of bring us up to speed, last Sunday I talked about just the, the morality gap between Jesus and Saul. And I said, Jesus is the perfect one, the holy one, the sinless one, pure in every respect. And I said, if he were on that end of the stage, that end of the morality spectrum, you would find Saul at this far end of the stage, evil personified. And then I talked about how in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 30, I talked about how Jesus pursued that man, unbelievably, unbelievably that man, and offered repentance and forgiveness and salvation to that man. And, and Jesus encountered the risen Jesus who had already ascended to heaven, showed up on the road to Damascus and, and physically encountered Saul. And in that encounter and the three days that followed, Saul would ask forgiveness and ask leadership and he would radically give his life to Jesus. And I talked last week about how Saul never got over the stunning grace and he never, never wavered in this deep, deep gratitude to Jesus, that Jesus would save him. And then I talked about how while Saul was a mass murderer, I talked about how the rest of us, we weren't nearly as bad as Saul, but compared to the absolute holiness of Jesus, we were about one inch to this side of Saul. And Jesus has pursued every man and woman on the planet. And when we turn to him and surrender our lives to him, he forgives everything, everything. So that catches us up. We're in Acts 9 now. Uh, Saul becomes a follower of Jesus. And from verses um, 19 to 25, the writer of Acts, who is Luke, compresses three years into those seven verses, 19 to 25. He compresses three years into that. And, and he begins to talk about how this Saul, who was the persecutor, now begins to openly talk about Jesus being the Messiah, the Savior, the risen Son of God. And, and he talks about how Damascus then quickly turned on him and wanted to persecute him, wanted to execute him as well. And what Luke doesn't record, but Paul does in Galatians 1, at some early point, he leaves Damascus. He escapes there. He goes into Arabia to the desert to the east of there and spends three years in, in Arabia in the desert. No word about what he's doing. He's probably telling some people about Jesus, knowing Saul, who becomes Paul. But he's probably also spending deep time with God and, and having God sort all this out for him. And then he comes back somewhere in the middle of these seven verses, comes back to Damascus again. And Luke picks up then where the people of Damascus now decide they're going to kill him, as he killed so many. And, and it says that the followers of Jesus had to get him out of the city. The gates were being guarded. They had to lower him over the outside wall of the city in a basket. And then in verse 26, then he goes to Jerusalem after three years. When Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers, but they were all afraid of him. 
They did not believe he had truly become a believer. So he goes to Jerusalem after three years of following Jesus, and the apostles won't meet with him. And I'm sure that they had still fresh memories of people that they loved, maybe even their own family members who were in the grave because of Saul. It had to be fresh on their minds so they knew where the graves were simply because of Saul. He was the ultimate enemy of Jesus. And now he shows up in town, and as they have heard for three years, he shows up in town, and, and he wants to meet with them, saying he's one of them. And, and they're, they're afraid to do it. They're probably thinking this is just a plot that he's put in place, and, and he wants to find out where we're hiding. Once he finds out where we're hiding, then he'll have all of us executed. But, but there's a part of me that begins to think, guys, it's been three years Three years ago, you began to hear that Saul had completely done a 180. Three years ago, you began to hear he was talking about Jesus in Damascus. For three years, he disappeared. He came back to Damascus. Same story. This was the same Saul that did not even have time to breathe. He was so passionately killing Christ followers. For three years, not a single Christ follower killed by Saul. Three years. But they don't trust him. Verse 27, then Barnabas the one we read about in chapter 4 that sold the field for the poor. Then Barnabas brought him, Saul, to the apostles and told them how Saul had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus and how the Lord had spoken to Saul. He also told them that Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. And so the apostles, so, so Barnabas is one that the apostles trust. Barnabas brings Saul in and he says, he belongs. This is a new man. This is not the same man that that was doing the killing. This is a brand new man, genuine faith in Jesus. He belongs with us. And the apostles, for the first time, they they accept Saul among them, amongst them. And there's this, finally, after three years, there's this sense that Saul has, finally, I, I trusted Jesus three years ago, finally. The church is saying, I belong. I'm part of them. I'm part of them. And then some time passes, and and it would be hard to overstate the difference that that belonging made to, to Saul, the difference it made to be embraced and belong by the church. Uh, some time passes, and if you turn to Acts 11, verses 19 to 26, uh, an entire decade has passed. Um, Saul, when he first went to Jerusalem, he began to preach about Jesus, and the authorities began to desire to persecute and kill him, and the apostles sent Saul to Tarsus, I, Uh, right after he shows up in Jerusalem, they send him to Tarsus just so he could live. So 10 years have now passed, and and he's been in Tarsus all this time. There's this revival that breaks out in the city of Antioch that's 250 miles north of Jerusalem. And it's a surprise. There are people right and left trusting Jesus. The apostles in Jerusalem hear about this revival, and so they send Barnabas up to Antioch just to check it out, be sure it's valid, see how they can help, how they can support it. Barnabas gets up there to Antioch, and he sees it. He sees it's the real deal. It's like this wildfire just running through the city, people trusting Jesus. And he realizes that for all these people, this faith is brand new. He realizes that there's a need for leadership and there's a need for teaching. And all of a sudden, there's this ping in his mind. And he recalls this guy, Saul, that that had so much leadership and so much teaching ability. And it says in verse 25, verse 11, Then Barnabas 
went on to Tarsus, which was a hundred mile journey by foot to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. Both of them stayed there with the church for one full year, teaching large crowds of people. It was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. So first Saul is accepted into the church and he's told he belongs. They send him off to Tarsus and for a decade he's forgotten. Ten years have passed, he's off the radar. He's probably telling folks about Jesus in Tarsus, but there's no record of any effect of his life in Tarsus. Ten years have passed and Barnabas gets to Antioch and he sees we've got this massive need for someone who can lead and teach and all of a sudden he he recalls this guy Saul and he makes this long journey on foot to Saul and says, Saul, not only do you belong, but you can make a difference. I, you are needed in the kingdom of God. You can make a difference. And Saul comes back and together they begin to build this new church in Antioch. And, and then after a year, if you turn to chapter 13, after a year then, Saul and Barnabas and the leaders of the church of Antioch are praying And the Holy Spirit speaks and says, I want to send Saul and Barnabas on this missionary trip along the Mediterranean. And and we know what launches out of that. Saul makes numerous missionary trips throughout much of the Roman Empire. Much of the Roman Empire is exposed to the good news of Jesus Christ. and, And the world begins to change because of what happens in Saul's life, who becomes Paul, by the way. And then what we know now is that out of all of that, as he began to make missionary trips, he began to write, and God began to use him. And this Saul, who became Paul, would write over one-fourth of the entire New Testament. And I found myself thinking back to, to that early season when Saul comes to Jerusalem, and he's saying, guys, I'm one of you. And no one believes him except Barnabas. And Barnabas believes that he belongs And he includes him in, which prepares the way for 10 years later. And Barnabas says, the church deeply needs someone who's very gifted in the areas of leadership and teaching. He thinks of Saul, and Saul's been out to pasture. And he finds him and brings him back. And then when he's back in Antioch, um, like the plan of God explodes, explodes. And I found myself thinking, who would have thought? Who would have known? Who would have known that this all would happen because of because of the acts of Barnabas in Saul or in Paul's life. You never know, you never know what's going to happen when you reach out to someone like that. But it doesn't end there. If you were to turn to Acts chapter 15, um, Saul and Barnabas make this very first missionary trip, and they invited a young man named John Mark to make the trip with him as their assistant. And they realized it would be a very difficult, very dangerous trip, and they realized that they... It would be life and death as they would go, and, and, and every bit of energy, every man would be needed to make the trip. And very early on in the trip, John Mark quits on them and just goes home and leaves Saul and Barnabas for all of the work and all of the effort. And so they go on, just the two of them, and they make the rest of the missionary journey. They come back to Antioch. They see how God's worked in the missionary journey. In Antioch, God prompts them again and says, Saul and Barnabas, I want you to go out again. And Barnabas says, remember John Mark? Let's take John Mark. I see something in him. I see potential in him. And Paul, who was Saul, Paul says, have you forgotten so quickly? He's the quitter. He's the one that bailed on us. Do you know what's at stake on this next trip? It's not just life and death. It's heaven and hell. We need people we can count on. And Barnabas insists John Mark is one that can be counted on. I see he's grown, he's changed. And there's such a difference of view that rather than one missionary trip, 
there are two missionary trips to get launched, and Paul takes Silas, and Paul and Silas go off on a trip, and Barnabas takes John Mark and go off on a trip, and fast forward 20 years later, and Barnabas was right. Saul is now Paul. Paul is now, he's writing what would be the last letter he would write in the New Testament. He's in prison. He knows he's at the very end of his life. It's not only the last letter he would write, it's the last chapter of the last letter he would write. He's writing to Timothy, another church leader. He says, Timothy, when you come, bring Mark with you because he will be of great help in the ministry here. 20 years later, he's saying, Barnabas was right. Barnabas saw something in him. He was right. Bring Mark with you. We need him right here. I need him right here. Barnabas was right. And then we know now that in that same season in which Paul was writing to Timothy saying, bring Mark here because he will be so helpful in the ministry here. About that same time, God was stirring Mark's heart to be the author of the very first gospel ever written. We know it as the gospel of Mark. It'd be the very first gospel written. God would choose him to write that gospel. And then Matthew and Luke, who would write two gospels, would pattern theirs after John Mark's gospel. And I found myself thinking about this guy, Barnabas, and it would appear as you read through Acts, he's just a footnote. And I'm thinking, it wasn't in one life, it was in two lives. He played a key role in the development of two of the biggest spiritual giants of the entire New Testament. Why? Because he saw potential in them in their life in Jesus Christ. He saw his deep potential in them in their life in Jesus Christ. And there were a couple of biblical truths that, that he relied on. And I want to talk about them because they should matter to us today as well. The first one is this. He had to know this because he lived it out. When someone surrenders their life to Jesus, they become a brand new person. When someone surrenders their life to Jesus, they become a brand new person. In the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27, uh, through God's prompting, the prophet would write, when the Messiah comes, when that day comes, and someone trusts the Messiah, he says, I will, I will take away their old heart that's this hard, callous heart. I'll give them this tender, responsive heart. I'll take away their old spirit. I'll give them this brand new spirit. They'll be a brand new person. When the Messiah comes, they trust the Messiah. They'll become a brand new person when they trust the Messiah. And then Jesus in John 3, 3, one of his first teachings he would say to Nicodemus, he would say, you have to be born again. If you're not born again, if you don't become a new person, you don't have a chance to be right with God. You don't have a chance for eternity in heaven. You have to be born again. You have to become a brand new person. And then Paul would write one of my favorite verses in all scripture. He would write in 2 Corinthians 5.17, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone a new life has begun. The moment, and this is true, all of you that have trusted Christ in this room, the moment you authentically began to trust, there was a DNA change in you. There was a spiritual DNA trade-out. You became a new person in that very moment. And yes, there, there was and still is much growth to come until the day we die there will be, but there was a, there was a shift as Ezekiel would say, there, before you were prone, you were bent toward the wrong. Now you're bent toward the good. You're a brand new person. 
And so when Barnabas saw Saul show up in Jerusalem after three years, and Saul was claiming to be a brand new person, Barnabas said, well, it makes sense. That's what Jesus does. He felt it doesn't matter how wayward, how far someone is. They're not beyond the reach of Jesus and the complete transformation of Jesus. They become a brand new person. He believed that. And so he brings Saul to the apostles and says, you know the deal. We became new. He has too. He's, he's not the same man. The, the executioner, the murderer is dead. And a new saint has been birthed in this man. This is a brand new man. In Paul, in the very first book that he would pen that would be in the Bible, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he would say, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, no longer the old person who lives, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself to me. Saul becomes Paul. So radically different, they even had to change his name. He became a new person. And, and the truth of Scripture is that, that everyone who surrenders to Jesus becomes a brand new person. And the message is, you belong. Like you belong in the fellowship of God. You belong in the fellowship of Christ's followers. You belong. Barnabas knew that. He knew that. He also knew when someone surrenders their life to Jesus, they're given a spiritual gift from God. When someone surrenders their life to Jesus, they're given at least one spiritual gift from God. Let me define spiritual gift. Everyone here has abilities, and all of the abilities come from God. You have abilities, a variety of abilities, they all come from God. A spiritual gift is a, an ability that God's given you in which God chooses, whenever you use that gift, He chooses to put the power of the Holy Spirit behind it. No longer is it just the effect of your skill level, your ability level, your human level. He puts the power of the Holy Spirit behind it. And there's an impact and an influence that's supernatural. And so if it's a spiritual gift, then it's an area of ability that you have. And God's just chosen when you use that ability, the impact is going to be at a whole new level, whole new level. And there are three sample lists of spiritual gifts in the Bible. They're just samples. They're short. One is in Romans 12. If you want to look it up in Romans 12, there's a short sample list. In 1 Corinthians 12, there's another one, 1 Corinthians 12, and then 1 Peter 4. And they're all short samples, and there's some overlap between them, but, but clearly they're not intended to be complete list. But I look through Scripture, and I see all kinds of abilities that God turned into a spiritual gift. For example, you can see administrative ability. See a guy named Joseph, and God gives him this ability, and God works in that. The ability to have art in which God pours his spirit to have the impact of the art go far beyond natural ability. For some, it may be carpentry. For some, counseling. Some gardening. Some hospitality. Some leadership. Some music. Some teaching. And many, many, many more. But here's the point. Is, is every single follower of Jesus, God gives at least one spiritual gift where when you use that, the very power of God will be at work in that. Paul himself would write this down in um, Second Corinthians. I'm sorry, First Corinthians twelve seven. First Corinthians twelve seven. A spiritual gift is given to each of us that know Jesus, so we can help each other. A spiritual gift is given to each of us, speaking to Christ followers, so we can help each other. And the message, and 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 Barnabas knew this, and so he 
he's off now 10 years after the Jerusalem encounter with Saul. He's off in Antioch. He sees this revival exploding, and he realizes all these brand-new followers of Jesus, they, they need a massive infusion of leadership and teaching. And there's this ping in his brain, probably pinged by the Holy Spirit. And he says, I once knew a guy named Saul 10 years ago, and I saw these massive gifts in him of leadership and teaching. And I just wonder if he would come here and he would use those gifts for the kingdom of God. And he makes a trek to Tarsus 100 miles one way. He gives a vision to Saul. And Saul, who's been on the shelf for 10 years, comes back and begins to employ those gifts. And all of the rest is history. He knew that. He knew that. And, and the message to us is every single follower of Jesus you know has been given a spiritual gift. And the message is, is that God intends to make a difference through them. It's more than they just belong. God intends to make a difference through them. So I find myself wondering, has someone ever been a Barnabas to you? Has someone ever looked at your life as a follower of Jesus and seen potential in you? Has has someone ever looked at you and said to you, "I, I see a brand new person in you. I see someone who no longer needs to be constrained by their past I need someone, I see someone in whom the past is dead. It's been executed. There's a brand new person in you. Has there been a Barnabas in your life that said, I see a spiritual gift in you? You're made not just to belong, you're made to make a difference. I see, I see a gift you could use to make a difference in the kingdom of God. Have you had a Barnabas that's spoken into your life? I was a brand new follower of Jesus, and I, I quickly saw in my workplace I thought if we could just do a Bible study in my workplace that there could be some people that might meet Jesus and might grow in that. But uh, I, I knew I could not lead a Bible study. I had never led one. I didn't know much about them. I just heard about them. I just knew we needed one. So I went to this friend of mine who I knew had led Bible studies in the workplace before. And I gave him this vision. And I said, would you come lead it? And, and he said, well, great vision, but you can do it. And I said, you're nuts. You're nuts. And we went on for sometime, probably weeks, this argument. I said, it's needed. Do you see it? And he said, I see it. And I said, come lead it. And he said, you can lead it. And finally he said, okay, I'll come. I'll come. Here's a caveat. I'll come for four weeks. You watch me for four weeks and then I'm going to disappear and you lead it. And we argued about that for a long time. I said, I can't do it. And And finally I agreed. And my only hope was that in the first four weeks, sometime in that span of time, Jesus would come back and I wouldn't have to lead because I couldn't lead. The guy was nuts. And so he comes and he leads for four weeks and it's, it's alive and God works in it and he disappears in week five. And in week five, I don't think I led all that well, but God showed up in week five. God was there. And week six, people came back and God showed up again in week seven and eight and nine and 10 and all. And, and there was this guy, his name is Richard Bales. He was the guy that said, you can do it. And I couldn't see it. Barnabas in my life, in somewhere as that era began to unfold further, we were in a small group in church, and the way small group ran was very different than the way this Bible study ran. And so we're in this small group that is very much alive, and the leader tells me he's going to be gone in an upcoming week, and he says, I'd like you to lead the group. And I said, I can't do that. You're nuts. He said, you can lead it. And I said, no, I can't lead it. And finally I give in, and the the Sunday comes, or whenever we, we met, comes, and I lead it, it was a complete disaster. 
It's just not my opinion. It was the unanimous opinion of the entire group. It was a disaster. And so six months later, the leader comes back again and says, I want you to lead. And I said, you have a short memory. Don't you recall when I led? It was a disaster. Everyone told you it was. It was. And, and he says, I, I know you can lead it. I know you can. And he leaves, and I lead it. And God shows up. And it was Dennis Townsend that said, I see something in you. You can do this. You can do this. A lot of you know Tim Gerald's who's been a pastor here now for four years. And, but back in Tim's high school days, his pastor, Kevin Pate, came alongside him one day and said, I see such leadership in you, and I think you could lead your peers in this student ministry. You could lead your peers. And not only that, you could be a spiritual leader on the football team at the high school. And, and Tim had never seen that. He didn't believe he could do that. But Kevin began to pour into him and, and gave him leadership opportunities. And as it unfolded, Tim saw he had leadership in that. And there, were, there was a time or two that Kevin said, I believe you can teach. And he gave him teaching opportunities. And, and Tim saw he could do that and had this great run the last year of high school. And, and, and God worked in that. But Tim had plans to move on with life. And, but before he got moved on far enough... Kevin sat down with him again and said, I, I, I think you could be a great intern. Like right here, you can intern here. Go to college while you intern. Make plans for life. While God shows you his plans for you, just come intern. I think you can do it. And Tim thought, you're nuts. But Tim came and did it, and, and God worked in that. And then by then, a couple of years of college have passed, and Tim is going to go on with life. And so he's registered at Texas A&M. And uh, I need to say this because of where the story's going he was, he was a brilliant young man to plan to go to Texas A&M. I have to say that because of the way the story is going to unfold. Brilliant move. He actually has a non-refundable deposit on a house at A&M. His girlfriend, who he's very close to, who would soon become his fiancée, who is now his wife, for the very first time, they'd be in the same city for the first time, and all the plans are made. Life is going to begin to unfold. And Kevin steps beside him one more time and says, I see in you the ability to be a pastor now. Go to U of H. Forget the deposit on the house. Forget the, he didn't say forget the girlfriend, Rachel. Don't hear me say that. He was saying God can strengthen your relationship from a distance more. I see you can be a pastor now. And I know Tim's first thought was, you are nuts. But Tim came here four years ago, and now he's the director of the entire student ministry. And, and he says, now Kevin Pate saw in me things I never saw in myself. Is there someone that has been a Barnabas in your life that has said to you, you belong. You're a new person. No need to be constrained by the past any longer. You belong in the fellowship of God and the fellowship of his field. You belong. There's been a Barnabas that's been in your life that says, I see this ability in you. I think it's a spiritual gift. I think when you use this, I think God puts his, his power into it. And the ripples go far when you use that gift. Is there, someone that's done, is there someone that's doing it now? Is there someone speaking into your life as Barnabas now? And I know there is. I know some of you, I know there is now saying you belong and you were made to make a difference. And I would ask then, I would ask then, to whom can you be a Barnabas? To whom can you be a Barnabas? Maybe your spouse who you know so very well, maybe you can speak into your spouse's life and say, I see this in you. I see great potential in you. Maybe a son or maybe a daughter or maybe a student. 
Maybe someone in your small group you've gotten to know well, you can speak into their life and say, I see this in you. And when you do that, you have no idea. They have no idea the impact upon their life. No idea. You never know the impact. I was talking with Marie about this subject last night at the kitchen table. As I began to talk about it and, and the power and the influence it can have just to be a Barnabas and speak in someone's life. She said, 30 years ago, uh, we've been followers of Jesus about six months. 30 years ago, there was a lady in our small group named Floyd Elam. She was about 20 years older than us. And she was so, you could feel the presence of God around her. And she said, Floyd Elam came up to me one day and looked me in the eye and said, I see the Holy Spirit at work in your life. Marie said, for the first time, I thought, it, it's true. I, I am a new person. I mean, Jesus has forgiven me, and he's begun to change me, and it's really true. And Marie's not spoken to, had contact with Floyd Elam for 28 years. And now, 30 years after those words were spoken, she remembers them like yesterday. You never know the impact when you speak those words. You never know the impact, but I know this. God intends the church to be filled with Barnabases. He intends his church to be filled with Barnabases. Father in heaven, thank you that um, when we trust Jesus, it's true. You make us brand new. No longer constrained by the past, no longer held to the past. You make us brand new. Thank you for that. And thank you that it's not just that we belong, but you You give us this giftedness that comes only from you where we can make a difference. We can make a difference. You can use us. You can make a difference through us. Father, thank you for Barnabas's in our past that has spoken into our lives and and shown us who we are and who we could be long before we realized it. Thank you for Barnabas's in our lives right now that have been speaking into our lives and saying, let me tell you who I see you as. Let me tell you who I see you could be. May we listen to him or her. May we not take it lightly. You never know what might come from it. And Father, thank you that we get to be from time to time Barnabas. We get to speak into someone's life. We get to somehow be your voice into their life. Think of the miracle and the wonder and the awe of that. We get to be your voice into their life. To say, can I tell you what I see in you? Can I tell you who I think you can be. Can I tell you the difference I think you can make? Father, may you explode the impact of Barnabas's in our midst. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.